Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to share some unfortunate news that we received recently from one of our patrons, and that is that another patron, Ian H., has passed away. Obviously, nothing I say here will lessen the impact this is going to have on Ian's friends and family, but to the person who reached out to us to let us know this, and any of his friends who also listen, please know we're thinking of you, and we are so very sorry. Take care of each other, folks. It's been a hard year. And if there's someone you love, hold them close and tell them you love them. We dedicate episode 102 to Ian. And I know we're starting on a pretty solemn note, but I promise that after this we'll make you laugh. And I think Ian would like that. your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Pass. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm Brennan Store, and this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 102. And we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. And yes, I say we, because I am here with my guest host, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, Paul Bestel from the Mysteries and Monsters podcast. How you doing, Paul? I'm all right there. That's nice to see we're pitching it at the right age limit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kids, if you don't know who Johnny Carson is, <laughs> go ask your grandparents, I guess. Oh, Jesus, Paul. <laughs> like Letterman, but with less hair. Yeah, no, that's, that about nails it. And let's not uh, interrogate any more of our cultural <laughs> references too deeply because Letterman himself is about 10 years out of date. Yes, yeah, 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 very true, very true. But uh, yes, we are here today to tell stories about the way of the desert haunting in Nevada. And I have this strange connection to the desert, Paul. I, I don't like it. Uh, I'm not a warm weather person. I am... <laughs> Much like a newborn child, completely incapable of surviving in the wilderness without every possible modern convenience available to me. <laughs> and yet I still seem to end up in this place. I seem to keep ending up in the desert. And the things that have happened to me there have not been anywhere near as traumatizing mm. as uh, what happens to some of the people in the stories we're going to be sharing. But I will say, again, by and large, it's, it's not been great. Yeah, deserts are strange places. I've been fortunate enough to visit the Sahara. Oh, really? Yeah, and ride a camel, you know, going oh, up full on Lawrence of Arabia. And um, that was just incredible. We went on a, on a tour of the, the south of Tunisia and, and stayed overnight at the, the last hotel in Tunisia, which basically backs onto the beginning of the Sahara Desert. Oh, wow. That must, oh man, that must have been an experience. I, I had originally planned to go to Tunisia actually in 2008. When I went to Morocco and Egypt, but uh, my cousin and I, who I went with, we got so sick in Morocco uh, that we ended up missing our boat to Tunisia because mm. we just thought, nope, this is not happening. Uh, we, you know, venturing very far from the toilet was uh, was was simply not a possibility. <laughs> yeah, it was remarkable because we went on a arranged camel trip, um, and my camel was a bit cheeky and enjoyed biting the bottoms of everybody else's camels. Um, so that was 
that was that indeed indeed i don't know why everybody thought i was responsible for this camel's bad behavior but there we have it yeah i, I don't know that anyone's very surprised that paul bestel ended up on the ass biting camel i'm just saying paul. <laughs> i'm just saying yeah story of my life that and um <laughs> but it was within about 20 minutes that was it it was just desert as far as the eye could see and it was sunset as well so it was it was it just created a, a very different atmosphere. Obviously, the lights changing, and you can see the polarizations of the of the colours as the as the sun sets behind the dunes. And it was, um, it was rather moving. There is a solemnity to night in the desert that I don't think you get anywhere else. Mm. I remember back in 08, rolling through Death Valley at about midnight, which mm. is about the only time I recommend rolling through Death Valley, especially in <laughs> yes. I think it was August when we did it. <laughs> Uh, it was so hot, I picked up a rock because a friend of mine used to collect rocks from different places. So when I would travel, I, I would grab one for them. Um, I picked up a rock and again, at midnight, it was so hot, it burned my hand. Mm. But we pulled over to take a couple night, sh- night photos and there is, yeah, it's, it's like being in church, mm. except church is on fire and full of rattlesnakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was very odd as well, because all of a sudden some nomads turned up on stallions with clearly a couple of local animals that they captured. So there was a desert fox that they were charging five pounds for a photo with, uh, and also <laughs> an eagle, um, which okay. clearly had its, sadly had its wings clipped. Oh, um, man. So I refused to partake with any money. Yeah, that's fair. Well, that's, that's, that's something at least. Uh, and to be fair, I was also concentrating on not falling off the camel. When I was in Egypt, we had the option of riding a camel and I didn't because on our way up to the Giza plateau, we walked and there was a guy riding a camel the other way hmm. and he was just bouncing and <laughs> in between bounces, he would say, don't do it. It sucks. This hurts. Don't do it. This sucks. And, and just like he fading away, you know, like, like a, like a, a barely remembered song as he disappeared down the plateau. But, uh. I took that to heart and I never bothered, I never bothered with a camel. I paid $5 for a bottle of water from a little kid, mm. but I did not ride a camel. Yeah. My tip is hold on like your life depends on it. Because it does. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Especially, especially that height. You know, you're about eight foot up. So, oh, no, you know, no. it's a long way down. I am a heavy creature, Paul. I need to be near the ground <laughs> because... Well, for a lot of reasons, but uh, yeah, mass and acceleration are not my friend. And in this age of YouTube, I've seen enough people go ass over tit off a camel, so I was determined not to be somebody's YouTube video. That is sort of the, the challenge of the modern era, is to you know, stay alive and not end up as part of someone's YouTube blooper reel. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with The Way of the Desert. Welcome back. As we said before the break on this episode, we're talking about the haunting of Nevada and you managed to find some, some really interesting ancillary stuff because we've got a, an amazing collection of stories to go into. 
but then you managed to find uh, sort of some things around Nevada, which are not full stories unto themselves, but just creepy subjects or interesting places. Yeah. Nevada seems to be one of those states where strange things seem to be embraced all across it. And one of the ones I think is quite well known, primarily because I think a couple of ghost exploration shows have been there. Um, I think Ghost Adventurers might have been there. No, good. And, and Okay. Uh, is the terrifying <laughs> Clown Motel. So yeah, I'm always worried about any establishment that's called a motel rather than a hotel. Now, I have to push back against this because there is an unfair stigma against motels. I love motels much more than hotels. Mm. There is something reassuring about there being nothing between me and the world but a single cheap door. <laughs> Well, I think it's because we don't have much, many of them over here. Right, 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 right. No, I, I have stayed in more motels than I have hotels, typically because they're cheaper. Mm. You know, like uh, a Motel 6, which generally are livable. You mm. know, Motel 6, usually you're, you know, eh, the bed bugs aren't so bad. I mean, yeah, usually. And you're looking at like 75 to 90 bucks for a room. Whereas, you know, a fancy, like a Holiday Inn Express, you know, you're looking at 150 bucks. That's real money, Bestel. I'm not paying that. <laughs> Well, I've, I've stopped in my fair share of dodgy hotel rooms. I once stopped in one in London, uh, which essentially looked like it had been cleaned up after a murder. Um, oh, no. It was one of those where you weren't really sure if the wall was just dirty or was it blood? I'm not sure. Oh, no. Yeah, I didn't test it. Nope. That, yeah, just give it a lick, you know? It tastes mm. like pennies. <laughs> this is bad. I had that in a hotel in, and we, I promise listeners, we won't spend this whole time talking about hotels, uh, but- <laughs> I stayed in a hotel in Frankfurt, Germany, mm. and uh, I did not realize it was in the red light district when I booked it. Mm. And it was a singularly terrifying experience just getting there <laughs> because I was 12 years younger than I am now and still very, uh, I won't say naive, but I was just very, you know, I wasn't quite as self-possessed as I am now. Mm. And there was a mysterious red pool that had soaked into the carpet on one of the landings of the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying someone was stabbed there, but I'm saying if you're going to get stabbed in Frankfurt, there's a better than even chance it happened in that hotel. It's probably just cherry aid. I like your optimism. But back to Nevada. You, uh, so there's the, the clown motel in, uh, it's in Tonopah, I believe. Yes. This is quite weird on two aspects. There are over 2,000 clowns, dolls, mugs, masks, toys, just stuffed into this place everywhere, wherever you go. All bad. Yeah. And of course, one of them is supposed to move around, which is why people visit there on the uh, guise of doing a haunted investigation. But strangely, next to the motel, there's a cemetery. Oh, okay. Some people think the motel's haunted, whereas other people think it's something from the cemetery that's haunting the motel. Right. Interesting. But the cemetery was there first, which begs the question, why would you build a motel next to a cemetery? I I can only assume that the land was cheap. Or, <laughs> You'd hope. <laughs> well, yeah, one would think. Or maybe whatever weird bastard decided he wanted to build a hotel themed around clowns thought the appropriate place for this is next to the graveyard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sounds like it was the perfect two-in-one for somebody like John Wayne Gacy. I mean, maybe. Who knows? Maybe he was one of the early investors. He was part of the <laughs> Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> and that is all bad. And uh, coincidentally, actually, we have a, a, pretty, a pretty dark story from Tonopah. Mm. In uh, c coming up, not not involving the clown motel, but uh, but sort of taking place in the city itself. We'll talk about it more when we get there. But it, in the telling, it reminds me very much of 
some of the small towns here in, in Western Canada. But again, we'll, we'll get to that when we get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we move on, was, uh, what were some of the other interesting or, and or spooky things you found in and around Nevada? Because I know uh, you've read David Weatherly's Silver State Monsters. Yes. I have not yet done that, actually, although I'm a big fan of David's work. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things creeping around in, in the Silver State? So Nevada is one of those states where most people would be surprised to to hear that it's got a long history of a variety of creatures and monsters and cryptids, including quite a lot of Bigfoot sightings. Really? From, in, yeah. in Nevada? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, Where include- the hell does it hide? Are there trees? <laughs> well, Nevada is one of those states where I think it's like Texas. Most people think Texas is just a desert, not the fact right. that vast expanse of it's quite lush and green and swampy. Of course, um, yeah. And Nevada has, towards the north, has a lot of mountains and forest. However, there's a very famous incident where a Bigfoot was sighted walking through a nuclear test facility. So that story does the rounds occasionally, and that's obviously called the nuclear Bigfoot. Of course. But that one got leaked to the press where somebody working on the base saw an eight-foot creature just walking through the, the area. Oh, I bet I bet his base commander was so happy about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or his, his boss or whatever. Like, Larry, did you the press, nuclear Bigfoot, you knew what you know what they're gonna do to me about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and especially in that era as well, because obviously Bigfoot reports weren't that common to be reported in the press. So it was a bit unusual that it, it made such a kerfuffle, but I think that's probably because it was in Nevada. So roughly what time period are we talking for the nuclear Bigfoot, which is also going to be the name of my, uh, my upcoming band? Yeah, uh, 1980, I think that happened. Oh, okay. Interesting. So you're kind of in that like nuclear paranoia yes. after Three Mile Island and uh, mm. I guess this is pre-Chernobyl though, correct? Yeah, Chernobyl was 85, wasn't it? Yeah, 85, yeah something, like, something like that. I will nod my head as though I know. Mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> but um, my, one of my favorite Nevada residents is the delightfully named Tessie, who's their lake monster that lives in Lake Tahoe. Oh, no shit. They have a lake monster. Yeah, they've got a couple, but Tessie's the favorite. Long history of sightings going back to Native Americans reporting strange creatures in the lake. And it's one of those that it it seemed to drop out of favor. And then there was a massive wave of sightings in the 1970s up until about mid-1980s and loads of people started seeing it. Interesting. Are there modern sightings as well, or is it all kind of 70s and 80s? No, it's still going on. I think the last reported one was about four years ago. And it's one of those, because a friend of mine, Richard Freeman, who's a, a British cryptozoologist, he's actually been out there and, and investigated it and looked at some of the reports. And a lot of people think it's just a very large sturgeon that's been released and, <laughs> and, and obviously just bred there, because sturgeons are very um, formidable fish. You can get up to 20 foot, some of the bigger. bigger. Jesus, really? Yeah. So See, This uh, is why I don't go anywhere near the ocean. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or the water, just the water generally. Tame water is fine. Pools, great. Glasses of water, fantastic. Coffee, yeah. even better. But mm. anything anything that involves 20 foot fish? No, that's not a fish anymore. That's a beast. <laughs> but there's also one of those wonderful myths that occurs when we get creatures. Because I don't think you need to exaggerate, Tessie. Because there's enough witness reports from experienced people and, and locals. But there's a story that goes does the rounds occasionally that Jacques Cousteau, the world-famous diver of the 60s and 70s, allegedly visited Lake Tahoe and had an experience that 
terrified him to the extent that he basically said that he would never dive in, in Lake Tahoe again and the world is not ready to know what is in there. Which would be okay if A, he'd ever been there well, and B, even been anywhere near the area. He's never been to Lake Tahoe. He never dived Lake Tahoe. The story appeared sometime in the mid-80s. There's no basis for it at all. So if you ever see anything that talks about Jacques Cousteau and Tessie, you can take it from me. It's complete and utter fabrication. Total nonsense. I do, however, have a girlfriend in Canada, so you you, you can't... Uh, you just, <laughs> you, you wouldn't know. Yeah, you, you, you wouldn't know her, though. Yeah, she's up north. Yeah, very busy, very busy. All right, well, <laughs> so that particular story may not be true, but we do have a lot of really great true paranormal stories coming up, and now it's time for them. King for a Night Years ago, after my divorce, my sister Raina helped me move all my stuff off my ex-wife's lawn and into a U-Haul, then kept me company on the 18-hour drive from Denver back to our parents' house in Sacramento, California. Our original plan was to make the whole drive in one very long day, trading off on the wheel every four hours or so, but it didn't work out that way. I don't know if you've ever been divorced, if not, lucky you, but the stress of it beats the shit out of your body and mind. So when my second shift started in the sunset just short of Delta, Utah, I was already feeling worn out. A little over two hours later, ways past Ely, Nevada, fatigue completely overwhelmed me, and Raina very kindly suggested we should just find a hotel and crash out. Now, I don't like retracing my steps at the best of times, that's probably why I never remarried, so going back to Ely wasn't an option. Instead, we pushed on into the night until we hit the next town of King, Nevada. King wasn't much of a town. Imagine one of those Potemkin cities the Russians used to practice urban combat during the Cold War, but stripped down to a single main street plus a hotel and McDonald's. There was no one on the street, but given how small the city and how late the hour, neither of us thought much about that. There was a clerk at the King Hotel, and he, at least I think it was a he, my memory of that part is spotty, had a room, which is all we cared about. Raina and I crashed out, and that was that. The next morning, we both woke at the same time to the sound of talking in the hallway outside our room. I can't tell you what time it was because we quickly discovered there were no clocks in the room. Or any other furniture, aside from the bed. No wardrobe, dresser, TV, table, chairs, nothing. The room had two twin beds, a toilet, a shower, and a sink. I've never seen anything else like it. Something pinged me then. An unease that started just below the surface of my awareness but pressed upon my waking mind like a tumor on a nerve. I knew something was there, but not what. When we exited our room to find no one in the hallway, or at the front desk, that sub-Rosa unease became conscious dread. King was no busier in the daylight than it had been at night, and the sense of unreality was becoming stronger. Both Raina and I aren't prone to panic, so the fact that we were both unseated by all this was a major red flag. Yet still, we tried to be rational and decided breakfast would help connect us back to reality. McDonald's was just across the street, so we walked over only to find the dining room closed. The drive through was open, however, so we got back in the truck and a voice took our order, but when we rounded the corner to the pay window, it was closed. Our food was ready, though, so after a moment's hesitation, we drove off and decided it was better to eat on the road. 
We didn't see any kind of road signs until we had been driving for close to an hour and none of them mentioned the small town we just left. It's probably not going to surprise you that King Nevada doesn't exist on any map I've ever been able to find, nor on any record of the many ghost towns that dot the state. It simply doesn't exist. And yet my sister and I remember it well. I got to say, I really love stories like that. I, I don't necessarily know that I believe them because there, there are so many questions mm. that they raise, you know, like if it's ghosts, how did ghosts make them McDonald's? Like that's, that's a ghost I want to meet because that shit is, is getting more and more expensive every day. And if I had a, <laughs> just like a poltergeist that could make me a big extra or something, I would be very happy. They are weird stories as well, because there's not many of them like that. Um, when I was reading it, it really reminded me there was a, a famous incident that happened over here in 1979. Right. Where two English couples got a ferry to France and ended up wanting to do exactly the same. They got a bit tired on the way down to, Sp they were driving down to Spain and um, they stopped in a town called Montelimer. Okay. And they believed that they'd ended up staying in a ghost hotel because on the way back, they tried to find it again and couldn't find it anywhere. And where they thought it was, was just basically a, a weed-covered building site. Oh, interesting. But um, they, they couldn't understand why it was so ridiculously cheap and the hotel looked very old-fashioned and everybody was dressed very differently. But they, they went on the telly a few times in the 80s and 90s over here talking about this experience and, and the camera didn't, but they took some pictures there and none of the pictures turned out and that kind of thing. Right. Um, but as they say... Nobody seemed surprised at how they were dressed and the fact that they were in a modern car. There was nothing coming the other way. So right. I think a lot of people think that they were just very naive people who weren't used to traveling in deepest, darkest France. <laughs> well, you know, the, the uncharted territory that is deep, dark France. Yeah, well, for most English people, it's anywhere outside of Paris. For me, it was anywhere outside of Paris. I've been to, <laughs> I think, two uh, two two train stations in Paris, and then I've been to. Um, it's just across the border from uh, from Buell, Germany. So they've mm. got a cathedral. It's I can't remember. Anyways, it's an, it's a lovely little place. But yeah, I mean, most of France for me is 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 deep dark France. Mm. You know, I, the thing is, I've been on both sides of that because I, you know, I, I've told you the story and I've I've mentioned it on the show before about being in the Lizzie Borden house. Mm. And trying to take photos with my phone and it would not work. I have one photo I took with my, my PowerShot, uh, my Canon PowerShot G7X. I mm -hmm. think I, I, I don't even know where that photo is anymore, but everything else I tried to take in that house didn't work. But then I've also been in a situation where I'm in a place that doesn't seem real. Mm. I, I remember back in 08, we were over on the mainland, uh, me and some friends for another friend's wedding. And we were staying in this motel right next to a bar. But there were trailers everywhere. There were cables crisscrossing in front of the bar. When we went into the bar, it was midday, but there was no one in there, including staff. <laughs> and the prices were so cheap. And we thought, okay, so this is a movie set. Something is not right here mm. because it, that's just what it looked like. And then a, a bartender finally came out and said, no, this is a real place. I mean, they're shooting a movie down the street, which is why all that shit's there. But this is a, a, a for realsies place. You know, so it, there was a sense of unreality, but it turned out to just be in our heads, mm. you know? Um, although I will say that was a very surreal day and night because this is back when, when Bren used to drink. And mm. so we sat there from, I want to say one in the morning or sorry, one in the afternoon till they closed it. Mm. And at one point, uh, the actor Michael Madsen turned up cause he was filming whatever 
you know, direct to video dross uh, was, uh, was taking place down the road. And <laughs> that was a strange, strange night. I, I'm not, I won't get into it here, but uh, yeah, folks, if you ever find me in the pub or a coffee shop, ask me the Michael Madsen story, I'll tell you. But uh, yeah. So again, the point being, I recognize that, you know, it's possible to have the sense of unreality, uh, but, you know, it turns out to be, to be just, yeah, to be not be anything strange at all. Mm. Or, or sometimes too, to, to have that experience and, and, and realize that when you went back to the place, you went to the wrong place. Because for years I would tell the story and I talk about it, I think on the, um, on the Faye episode, uh, which is 26, I, you know, I was in Bunkrana, Ireland and I, I, again, I won't get into the whole story here, but I, I tried to flee to what I thought was a big hotel up on a cliff because I was having like this really freaky moment and the place was boarded up and I nearly shit myself hmm. because now I'm alone on this beach with this place that looks like it should be open, but it's not. And I did a little sleuthing around and I found the hotel that I thought it was. And I actually called them uh, years later because I, I told the story on, um, uh, on Micah's show on, um, Grayling Report. Yeah. And, uh, I tried to, and so I thought I, I better verify this. And I, the, the, the hotel said, no, you know, we've never been boarded up. We've never been closed. And so I thought, Jesus, I, you know, I passed into some parallel dimension or something, but no, it turns out. I had actually come up on another place that was just a little further around the point from the hotel. So I, I was just confused. Again, I, I thought I had like passed through some wormhole or something, but in actual fact, no, I just was very confused. So I, I do sometimes think there's, there's an element of that as well. But, um, again, in this case, I want to believe this is real. I want to believe that, um, mm. that somewhere out there is King Nevada and there is a free McDonald's bag waiting for me. Expectations. All my life, I've been into things like UFOs and the X-Files. So in telling this story, I understand you may think I went into the experience hoping something would happen. And I did. But I never actually thought those hopes would ever amount to anything. It happened on a road trip with my wife Bev on Highway 93, headed into Utah. It was dark, past 10pm, and we had just rejoined the highway after a long detour so I could visit Rachel, Nevada, to see Area 51 and have a saucer burger at the Little Ale Inn. It had been almost an hour, so maybe 60 miles since we'd seen another car, and in all that darkness and space, I saw a semicircle of maybe a dozen lights flash on in the sky. The lights were incredibly bright, and in shock, I shouted out to Bev, What am I looking at? She didn't have an answer and sat there staring at the anomaly. The lights were only there for a few moments before blinking off, in sequence, leaving us to the dark and our thoughts. About 20 seconds later, something began to darken the clouds in front of us, and those 12 lights reappeared, but in a triangle formation. Those lights were then joined by another group of bright lights, these in a diamond formation. The shapes were perfectly symmetrical and almost seemed to be facing us. The whole phenomenon lasted for 15 seconds and vanished the second my wife brought up her phone to take a picture. A few moments later, there was another flash, but this one was far above the clouds and had no definite shape. After that, nothing. Like I said, I've always wanted to see a UFO, so I'm being cautious in coming to any conclusions about what we saw that night. Was it a test aircraft? Some kind of military drone swarm? I will say, if it was a single craft, it would have to have been huge, but that's about all I know for sure. 
So this one, and longtime listeners will know, we don't usually do UFO stories on here. In fact, this might even be the first one we've, we've ever really had. But because I have had a single UFO encounter, mm. I am curious about the subject and I feel like it's, it's hard to talk about Nevada without bringing the subject up because mm. the two things are just so closely linked. And also because, I mean, you know about these things and, and, and <laughs> what you read there, is there anything that you have heard of that is similar to that? Yeah, there are numerous stories about light formations appearing. Obviously, the most famous one is obviously the Phoenix Lights, which was a very similar situation and explained away with numerous ever-changing explanations from the authorities. And a lot of people just dismiss it as people saying, oh, well, it was just flares falling from the sky, which which completely ignores all the witnesses that claim to have seen the lights attached to a very big black shape. And you're talking 1,200 witnesses? Oh, wow. Obviously, these days, the, the go-to answer would be, oh, well, it's a drone formation. But obviously, it all right. depends when this, what this show was, because drones seem to be the latest in a, in a line of very convenient explanation. And, and I mean, I, I'm aware of, of there being, you know, a single drones, but are drone formations a thing? Is that- Yeah. Are, are there like flocks of drones out there just sort of like- I don't know, hunting humans for sport in the night sky? (laughs) Well, strangely enough, on on the um, Unidentified, which was the Luis Elizondo show, in the second season, they actually went to see a drone formation perform. Oh, really? And there was about 200 of them, all changing colors and everything. It's incredible to see if you can see it. And I know for big sort of events, they do use drones as light shows now, and it seems to be a lot of people are moving from fireworks to drones. I had no idea. I mean, I guess that's great because it'll terrify fewer pets, but mm. uh, you know, knowing about the, you know, what drones have been used for up to this point, I mean, it's not encouraging to know there are more of them flying around. <laughs> yeah. Again, yeah, I've it, seen Terminator. I know where this goes. Whilst we know it happens and we have the technology and it's clearly been demonstrated, once again, I don't think it explains everything. And especially right now, I think UFOs are probably the most culturally acceptable that they've probably been since the 1950s right now. That's true because the government's released, or the US government at least, has sort of revealed that they have a, more than a passing interest in this stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I know a, not a lot of people know, but the Canadian government in the 60s at least, they had a program where they had their Air Force pilots interviewing commercial pilots who had reported UFOs mm. because my stepfather was part of that unit for a brief time. Yeah. And he interviewed a number of commercial pilots who, who said they saw things, they were like uh, cigar-shaped things flying alongside their craft, which sped away at incredible speeds, mm-hmm. uh, saucer-shaped things, which did the same. And my stepfather was very much uh, a very no-nonsense kind of guy. Yeah. So he, he believed these men, but he always thought it was uh, Russian craft or something. Mm. And I know in modern times, you know, we have developed uh, aircraft and, and things like this that can do a lot of shit that we, you know, didn't think was possible. But mm. back in the 60s, those, those things didn't exist. The Fall In 1975, I was five years old. My favorite TV show was The Waltons, and our dog Chester was my best friend. Life was both comfortable and safe, but that was all about to change. And like most of life's big moments, it came as a shock. We live in Southern California, and my grandparents lived in Central Nevada, so we only got to see them twice a year, once in spring, and then again in fall. It was like this because of the heat. Back in 75, we didn't have air conditioning, and driving in the desert during the height of summer is an experience best avoided where possible. 
This experience happened during the fall visit, when Nevada is still warm but not melt your tires warm. The way there was unexceptional, but on the way back my father had decided to take a new route recommended by my grandfather, one which he'd heard was faster and turned out not to be. Well, I should say, the route may have been faster, but we got very lost on those desert back roads, and the more lost we appeared to be, the more my parents argued about which way to go. Be grateful for your GPS, my friends. We found a place to stop just as the sun was beginning to set, the sky taking on its final orange glow. The town we ended up in barely qualified for the name. I remember a motel, a gas station, restaurant, and maybe a dozen mobile homes. But we were tired and hungry and willing to stay just about anywhere, which we proved by taking the only room the motel had left, a basement room with two double beds. Oh no, that's a bad idea. Whatever you're picturing, it was worse. A concrete floor, one dirty window, and a bathroom that had no bathing facilities whatsoever. Just a sink and toilet. It's been too long for me to remember the color scheme of the place, but I do remember the bed was the hardest thing I'd ever slept on that wasn't a floor. However, being a kid, I rolled over on my stomach, my arm hanging over the side of the bed, oh you fool, and eventually drifted off to sleep. I woke up to Chester tugging on my arm, which is something he would do if he wanted to play, but I was still asleep. My voice thick with sleep, I muttered something about playing later and passed out again. Later, it happened again, but this time Chester's tug was enough to wake me all the way up, and I was just about to whisper yell at him to go away when I remembered we hadn't brought Chester this time. A third tug pulled me all the way out of the bed to land on the concrete floor, and I screamed loud enough to wake my parents. Of the two, Mom was a lighter sleeper, and so she was the first to respond, leaping to her feet in time to see what she would later describe as a green ball of mist with a bright green center that was physically nauseating to look at. She said the ball was somehow dragging me across the floor by my arm. All I remember is a strange kind of firm amorphous grip on me, but I don't recall any visuals. Mom chased the green mist, screaming at it to let me go, and finally in frustration swung at it. Even though it apparently looked like a ball of mist, there was something solid enough there to be hit, because I remember there being a smacking sound, followed by a high-pitched scream I've never heard before or since. The thing then started circling the room faster and faster, before disappearing into the drain that was set into the middle of the concrete floor. I spent the rest of the night in my parents' bed, but, as you can imagine, no one got much sleep. A man who claims to know about such things told me much later in life that what we encountered was an imp, a low-level demon. He claimed these things were behind many cases of missing children, all of whom weren't as lucky as I was to have someone watching over them. I am not convinced about the demon thing. Mm. But, you know, we've had so many stories on this show about these things which are green in color that I, I can't dismiss it. You know, I, like, again, I don't think the explanation is necessarily correct. Mm. I, I think, you know, maybe there's a little bit of like sort of old school Christian paranoia in there. But the fact that, again, we've had so many stories of green, you know, there was the the x-ray tech who mm. fell asleep in, in the like the darkened room only to wake up and see there was... Uh, like a green portal on the wall. We had a listener, I believe, tell us a story about a green, uh, a green, I want to say a green something in their bedroom. There's a, a UFO story from Revelstoke about a, a helicopter that didn't move any of the trees around it and was swathed in kind of a green mist. You know, even my own UFO encounter was green. So there, there's something there, but I, I, I honestly just don't know what it would be. It, it's, it is goddamn terrifying though. The idea of being pulled out of bed by something that you can't, you can't really see or touch. 
And it's the fact that it, it has three goals at him. Yeah, that too. It is persistent. It, it's not given up. I mean, there are obviously numerous poltergeist cases where people have been allegedly dragged about. Oh, okay. The, the black monk of Pontifract um, dragged the teenage daughter up the stairs in front of her parents. Um, oh, wow. So I would, I would always, and especially as someone who loves poltergeists, obviously not too much because they're quite disturbing. I would always probably point to that kind of thing. But the whole scenario sounds a bit menacing, doesn't it? You know, you're in a dodgy basement with poor facilities on a, on a crap bed. Yeah. And, and the, the drain, I'm always interested because there does seem to be a, a coincidence between these kinds of phenomenon and water. Yes. And so the fact that it, that it escaped down a drain is, is I think, significant. Uh, of what it, what it indicates, I don't know. But uh, it, it certainly makes me want to stay away from concrete floors. Yeah, yeah. There always seems to be a real negativity about any kind of spectral encounter that involves water, in my opinion. Whether That's be, very true, yeah. I've spoke to this with a couple of guests on my show in regards to why there has to be this kind of negativity or this feeling of foreboding whenever there's an encounter in regards to seeing a spirit on a beach or ships or lighthouses or anything connected with water, there seems to be a real negative aspect to that particular event or that haunting. So it's it's very interesting how when water's in, in the mix, things seem to take a darker turn. That is so true. I wonder why that is. Mm. Mm. Listeners, if, if you have stories related to, uh, you know, paranormal stories related to the water, let us know, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com, uh, good or bad. You know, I, I'd be curious to hear because that, that is a, a point I'd never entertained before. And I mean, I, I obviously earlier in this episode, I expressed my own reservations about water in general. And so it, it may be, I'm more right about that than I expected to be. The boy driving truck. You see a lot of odd things. I remember one time up in Washington state, there was this minivan parked off the side of the road with the side door facing away from traffic open and a big tall guy standing in front of it. His feet were planted far apart, so you know, I figured he was taking a leak. But that didn't make sense, because who pees into their van, right? I look again just before I'm about to pass, and no, that man is having sex with someone or something in the van. For real. And that's just recently. I'm an OTR trucker, so I drive across this great land a lot, and the full catalogue of human strangeness is much bigger. The story I'm about to tell you, though, this one isn't the fun kind of weird. This one haunts me still. It happened on a warm summer night as I was barreling down US 93 in southern Nevada, headed towards Las Vegas. Traffic had been light since just before midnight, and my headlights were the only source of illumination for what felt like miles. My friend Brett is a trooper who likes keeping me company via the phone while I'm on these rides, and so our conversation about video games was the only thing on my mind when I saw the boy. At first, when I saw an object ahead of me on the hard shoulder, I thought it was a knocked over sign or sandbag or something, but the closer I got, the clearer it became. Understand that there is nothing around these parts. No houses, no rest areas, no nothing so there was no part of me expecting to see a person out there on the road, much less a child, yet I came to see that is exactly what it was. There, on the side of the road at 2am, about 30 miles from anywhere, was a little boy, maybe 8 to 10 years old, wearing a backpack and holding a white stuffed rabbit close to his chest. 
His eyes met mine and I felt a chill. There was nothing there. No emotion, no recognition, not even a flinch as my £80,000 semi-truck passed within feet of him at 65 miles an hour. The experience bothered me for hours afterward and I find myself telling Brett about it over and over, trying to make some kind of sense of it. Sure, the kid could have come from somewhere, but what the hell would he be doing out in the desert alone at that time of night? I don't believe in ghosts exactly, but I hope that's what I saw, because the alternative is even more frightening. This story really uh, put me in mind of of one of my old sins, and it's something that weighs on me still. Hmm. Because I have experienced something like this, and when I found the story online, one of the comments people made to the original poster was, why didn't you stop? Yeah. And he didn't really have an answer. You know, he, he didn't. He just said, I don't, I don't know. I just didn't. And so something like this happened to me in the desert, in Nevada, middle of the day, hot as hell. And there was an old man wandering in the middle of the median on the highway. Hmm. And he didn't seem to be looking for help. He was just walking, but in the middle of the goddamn desert, I don't know where he could be walking from or to. Mm. It's so inhospitable. I have, I have no idea. And yet there he was. And I never, I didn't stop. And I don't know, again, to this day, I don't know why I don't, you know, cause that would be something you think you would do, right? You think I see someone in need, I'm going to stop. But I just looked at it and thought that's weird and then kept going. Mm. And I don't know if that's just some kind of internal desire to not make someone else's problems your own or what's going on there. I think that's the, the fear factor of it though, because sometimes the incident strikes you as so peculiar, you can only take a negative response to it. I mean, I kind of grasp the battle that that contributor is dealing with there because it's 2am in the morning. How the hell is a kid out there in the middle of nowhere? If you do stop especially when you're driving a truck as well, you know, you've got something worth taking. That's, that's true. Yeah. And I know there are plenty of urban myths. One that often pops up is the, is the baby seat left by the side of the road that people get out and next thing they know they've been carjacked. But yeah, it's one of those where nobody can actually point to an actual event. There is always that aspect. However, there's also the, the the well-worn tradition of road ghosts, you know? Of course. Yeah. So we've got a, a small child. I mean, clearly the other aspect of this is he doesn't seem to re- recognize that the child seems frightened or perturbed by a situation, which under normal circumstances, you would suspect that a small boy in the middle of the desert at night in pitch black would be terrified. Yeah. Or, or out of sorts in some way. Yeah. Like I, I know someone who disappeared in a missing 411 style scenario mm. here on Vancouver Island. And, you know, like ultimately he was found in a lake, but it was a lake that had been searched, uh, well searched for, you know, uh, months beforehand. And then months later he he turned up in that lake. But, Mm. um, the last person to see him alive was a bus driver and the bus driver saw him by the side of the road. When the bus driver asked him, you know, are you okay? Uh, the guy said, no, I'm fine. There's nothing, you know, there's, there's nothing to, he, he just, he wouldn't accept any kind of help. Yeah. And so the bus driver continued on his way, but at least then, you know, there was something that seemed out of sorts other than just his appearance. Mm. Whereas this kid would not seem out of place if not for the time and place, mm. you know, he, he didn't see like there's, as you said, there's no obvious sign of distress. Yeah. Did I ever tell you about the time I, I tried to hitch a ride on semis? No. 
so years ago, I, I used to I used to hitchhike. I used to be very stupid, Paul. And <laughs> we've all done it. Oh yeah. And so um, I I was in a bad place in my life. I didn't really care what happened to me. So I was just eh, fuck it. I'm gonna thumb. And uh, I ended up taking this gig, working cash for the public library, offloading trucks. And the, I got along well with the driver. And I found out he was offloading the trucks. I just helped him load a couple towns over. And so I said to him, I said, oh, hey, well, you know what? I'll come with you, you know, uh, and mm. if you can get me paid, great. I did all the things I had to do and then I, I had to hitch home, mm. but I'd never hitched before. So I, I didn't really plan for this. Mm. I, I did it a bunch after this, but this was the first time. And so uh, I finally managed to get to a truck stop 45 minutes away from Revelstoke. There is nothing between there and Revelstoke. It's about 45 minutes of, of emptiness. And this is, I should point out, this was, this happened in, in late fall. So, um, a, a really heavy snow had started to fall mm. on my way back. So by this point, uh, snow was was just coming down, and I was wandering through this this truck stop diner, just talking to drivers, seeing if someone could give me a lift to Revelstoke, and mm. none of them could. No one, no one, obviously, because their insurance just doesn't allow for it. You know, they yeah. they just try not to do that. But there was one guy finally who pulled over for me as I stood under the streetlight by the side of the road, and uh, I got in the truck. And we, we took off and this guy was blowing through this blizzard like it wasn't there. And I, I, I've only ever had a couple times I've been mortally afraid, but this was one of them because this guy was just, just going like a fucking madman. And I I remember hearing over the CB radio, another trucker saying, you see that son of a bitch, he's going to get someone killed. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. That's me. Who's going to (laughs) die. Me who's going to get killed. But uh, I remember asking him, I said, um, where are you headed? He said, I'm going up to Rogers Pass. I said, so what happens at Rogers Pass? And he goes, I just leave the trailer in a parking lot and I I go back. And I Mm. stupidly said, what are you hauling? And he looked at me and looked back at the road and he didn't say another word after that. And that was one of the first times I remember thinking in my life, there are some questions you just don't need to ask. (laughs) And I, I, to this day, I have no idea what was in that truck, but it was very likely illegal. And it was really just sort of illustrated to me how easy it is for something to go wrong out there, mm. you know, because you are, this was pre-cell phone too, right? Like this, I, I didn't have a cell phone at the time. This is almost 20 years ago. Yeah. So you're just a lone figure out there at night in the snow waiting for the kindness of strangers. Mm. And the, again, I, quite often I was picked up by drug dealers. Yeah. I would say more often than not, I was picked up by drug dealers mm. um, and people of various, you know, well, shall we say dubious connection. And, uh, it's so easy for something to go wrong. So, you know, and, and as a driver too, you roll the dice every time you pick someone up. And I, I guess to that point, I sympathize with this guy, but I, I, I don't know what's worse to, to pull over and potentially have something happen or have that lingering question of whether or not you left a kid there by the side of the road. Mm. Yeah. For me, it seems as though that's something not of this earth. McPoltergeist. Did you know McDonald's used to sell spaghetti? It's true. Back in the 70s, some genius decided that what people went to a fast food burger joint for was Italian food you couldn't eat without utensils. It didn't last long over here, though I've heard it's still sold in the Philippines. And I tell you this so you know that discovering a poltergeist while working for McDonald's was far from the most frightening thing I ever dealt with there. My particular McDonald's was in a Walmart, one of the first, if I remember correctly. You could take a break from shopping for bags of rock salt and discount socks to enjoy a McDLT or a pizza, another limited time experiment from the land of the supersize. 
It was a busy restaurant in a busy store, so it took a few months after I started there to notice anything unusual was going on. The bulk of the activity seemed to happen in early mornings and late evenings, which makes sense as there was less traffic and you could focus on things. The first time it made itself known to me was when it called my name one night, as I was closing up. Despite there being no one around, I heard very clearly someone shout, Mike, in my ear. In my youthful ignorance, I chose to ignore it, and that was that, until another day soon after when a co-worker and I heard someone shout her name. We checked with the boss and other stuff, but eh, no one claimed to have spoken, and I remember her face went paper white. Things ramped up when our new GM Todd came on board. Todd had been in the stockroom doing whatever it is GMs do, when he came out looking almost as pale as my co-worker had. He said that while he was inside the storage, a heavy box seemed to throw itself off the shelf. The thing was mischievous, more than anything. Food items would disappear, then reappear hours later, or our cashiers would step away from the register for a second and come back to items having been punched in, despite there being no one nearby to do it. Sometimes there would be as many as four phantom items punched in that no one had ordered. That was it, really. It was a low-stakes haunting, but it was persistent. I worked in that location for almost two years, and it never let up. It was a fascinating time in my life, and I was a little sad when they moved me to another store, but back then I was a manager and was often moved around to help shore up struggling restaurants. I spent more of my life working under those golden arches than I'm comfortable admitting, but at least I got a story out of it, I guess. And I, Poltergeist, interestingly, th this keeps coming up with you and me, this Poltergeist thing. Mm. But I don't know if it's because they're more common than other types of hauntings, or if it's just that these are the things, because people recognize it more for being unusual, that they're more likely to, to report it. I, I don't know what the connection is there. I think with poltergeist, it's because it's a bit more than a standard haunting. A normal haunting is usually you see a shade or a figure or something moving about or a cold spot. Whereas poltergeists right. seem to love having fun with the living, whether it's throwing things about, shouting people's names or whispering them in their ears when they least expect it or... <laughs> you know, ringing in their favorite order on a register, throwing coins about. It, it's always a bit more to it than just a standard haunting. And I think that's why poltergeist cases stand out because they are a little bit more frenetic in most cases. Right. Do you guys have A&W over there? Um, no, I don't think okay. so. Yeah, they're, they're a fast food chain. And it, for a long time in Revelstoke, that's what we had for fast food. There was no McDonald's. When we finally got a McDonald's, it was a big deal. Mm. But the A&W used to be a drive-up restaurant. Mm. You know, they, they had car hops on, you know, on the skate, roller skates and things like this. Mm. And they would affix the, the, the tray to the side of your door and, and all that crap. <laughs> uh, eventually, the, the Revelstoke one was, was turned into a full-size restaurant with seating. But when I was researching Strange, there were a, a couple stories I got from employees at the A&W. Mm. They were very, very similar to what we see here. And, and then, you know, years later, I was talking to actually one of our listeners. I, I, they've asked me not to say which, but they also experienced something similar to this in a UK fast food place. And so there is this connection between like, retail jobs and poltergeist activity. And I, I wonder why that is. Well, a lot of people tend to presume that all poltergeists are connected with teenage puberty. Right. Um, but once you peel back the curtain, in the world of poltergeist, you'll realize that they tend to affect lots of people from lots of backgrounds. And it's very rare that it involves prepubescent teenagers. Interesting. Because you're right. That is, that is such a trope. I mean, that's something I had just kind of assumed. Mm, mm. I mean, Jeff Holder has a, did a wonderful book a few years ago, which was about 
Poltergeist over Scotland, which was essentially a catalogue of every major poltergeist case in Scotland that went back 500 years. Oh, wow. And you'd probably say out of about 140, 10% of them involved teenagers. Really? Mm. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's, again, I had no idea. But in a retail environment, you've got a lot of different emotions going on. You've got lots of different people from different backgrounds. There's a lot going on that happens outside of those four walls. Yep. So I'm more of the kind of feeling in regards to poltergeist that it's some kind of buildup of energy that creates right. something. And I think when you've got so many different people, and especially when you've got customers coming in and out, stressful situations, it, it seems to be a perfect storm that can sometimes just appear in that kind of environment, I think. That makes about as much sense as anything. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. It'd be interesting because there are lots of places, especially here in the UK, there are lots of shops that have like a a resident ghost or a resident poltergeist. So if anything, they tend to to occur more in retail environments than they do in households. Which again, if if the theory holds about sort of transient energy, that that makes a lot of sense. Mm, But I think it's, unless you can catalogue every major event involving what we would consider a poltergeist from a variety of backgrounds and countries, I don't think you would ever get a, a one-size-fits-all answer, because I'm sure for every every case I could say, oh, well, it's probably that, somebody would be quite happily pointing point out that I'm completely wrong and don't know what I'm talking about. The Lola. Having spent much of my life in service to the US military, I can say with confidence that many of my brothers and sisters in arms have stories of the paranormal. Like our combat stories, however, you're not likely to hear them unless you know someone on the inside and we have a reason to tell them. Since I love these kinds of subjects, I'm more inclined to share them most, and this is one of my stories. It started at a base in Nevada, where I was stationed for a period in the 90s. The base was famous in our world because it had once had underground tunnels which were used during wartime to ferry live ordnance back and forth to aircraft. By the time I had arrived, the tunnel openings, all three of them, which led to what we call the Lola, or Live Ordnance Loading Area, had been sealed, but the bunkers which housed them had been left standing. These bunkers were substantial in size, think large three-car garage, open at the front, and naturally camouflaged with sand. They were used for storage, either of equipment or vehicles, but often sat empty. It was on one of those empty nights I was posted to the Lola, and wasn't particularly happy about it. There were no vehicles to watch over, no aircraft on the flight line, just my partner, Walter, and me, and the goddamn coyotes. Even the coyotes must have taken the night off, because when Walter backed our patrol vehicle up into the central bunker, it was as quiet as can be. It's one of those little truths about being in the military, that it's sold to you as a grand adventure, which it can be, but there are moments as still and as peaceful as any as you'd find in a monastery. Since there wasn't anything going on, Walter and I passed the time by sitting in the bed of our truck smoking. Back then, it wasn't uncommon for the two of us to burn through half a carton in the 12-hour shift. I swear that if we didn't get discounts at the BX, I'd be a lot poorer today. So Walter and I are sitting there under a canopy of concrete, polluting our lungs and having a laugh, when I hear what sounds like soft footsteps above us. I assumed it was the area supervisor trying to sneak up on us, so I carefully crept out of the bunker and up around the side to find we were totally alone, without a person in sight, even after using my night vision. I figured I was hearing things, 
told Walter as much, and we went back to yakking. Minutes later, the footsteps returned, but this time from inside the bunker. Now Walter could hear them too. Too deliberate and slow to be coyotes, but too loud to ignore. It sounded like someone was grinding their heel into the grit of the cement floor, like they were walking around us in the truck. Walter asked if we could head back out on patrol, and I wasn't about to argue. The truck had different ideas, however, and wouldn't start. The footsteps got louder, then stopped. After that, the truck turned over, but into complete chaos. The headlights, wipers and hazards were all on, despite none of the switches or knobs being in the correct position. The radio was on, but tuned to static, just like my walkie-talkie, which started squelching for no reason. The various glitches sorted themselves out after a moment of driving, but just before they did, we drove through what looked like a light wisp of smoke or dust, dead centre in front of us. That was the last time Walter accepted a post at the Lola. If it came up, he'd always find someone to trade with. In my last few months before being transferred, I was approached by one of the other long-timers, a strong, smart type who was sceptical of the stories we'd tell. He had just come off a night posting at the Lola, and he looked bewildered. He started to ask me questions about the evenings I'd spent out there with the bunker and the coyotes, but just as it looked like he was about to come out with his own story, he faltered. After that, all he'd say was, I don't want to talk about it, but I knew that the Lola had shown itself to someone else. The Darkness Finds You Most people know the town of Tonopah, Nevada because of the Clown Motel, and that place is plenty creepy, but my experiences in that town are of a much darker variety. If you don't know, the town itself is a small place that was once a hub of silver mining, and it shrunk once the ore was mined out. The population sits around 2,000, I think, and unless you're headed to Vegas down the old Veterans Memorial Highway, you're unlikely to pass through by chance. My sister Wendy and I ended up there in the aughts after our mom finally divorced our deadbeat dad. We got an apartment together, and mom found a job as a night auditor at a popular hotel chain. While dad bore a lot of the responsibility for the divorce, mom herself had a phantom drug habit she would dip in and out of when she found herself miserable and in the wrong company. Tonopah, as it turned out, had plenty of that, and the depression she experienced after the divorce triggered a relapse, and consequently, Wendy and I didn't see much of her. In my mother's absence, Wendy found her own group of bad company, and it brought out a side of her I'd never seen before. She began a fight with my mother, verbally at first, but then things escalated, as is the way of the desert, and they took to hitting one another. Before long, Wendy left to live with Dad in Reno, and Mom spiraled even further working until 2 a.m., then hitting the party, any party, and not coming home, sometimes for days. This is when the darkness found me. That phrase might sound grandiose to you, but I don't for a second believe that our apartment was haunted. Rather, I believe that everything happening in our house between the depression, the drugs, mom thought she could hide it, but I wasn't stupid, and physical altercations invited something in. Darkness likes darkness, after all. It started with the unshakable feeling of being watched, day and night, and not only from inside my bedroom. Something was watching me from outside as well. The sensation became so unbearable I convinced my mom to switch rooms, but it didn't help. And so I began sleeping on the couch. The sensation of being watched didn't cease, but knowing I was so close to the front door allowed me some peace, since, should something happen, I had quick access to an exit. 
The darkness revealed itself one day when I was headed into the kitchen to make lunch. As I passed the hallway which led to the bathroom, with my mother's room on the left and mine on the right, I saw a huge dark figure run from her room into mine. Run isn't quite accurate since it never touched the floor, but it moved quickly and with purpose. It had no features, just a darkness that blocked out everything behind it, so tall it brushed the top of the ceiling. At the time, I was maybe ten, so I lost it and could no longer sleep in that apartment. To my relief, Mom began to feel watched as well, but since she had to work and we couldn't move, all she could do was bring me to the motel and let me sleep at her feet, behind the desk, while she worked. I'm sad to say those nights are some of my better memories with my mother. Before you suggest this was just some group hysteria that my mother and I shared, we weren't the only ones to experience something in our place. One day when I knew I was going to be home alone for a long time, I invited a school friend over for company, but she never got further than the porch. Something about the place frightened her. It was fall, so we stood there talking in the fading light amidst dry leaves until we heard, from around back, the sound of footfall approaching. This in and of itself was unexceptional. People passed by the apartment all the time, and it wasn't until the sound of leaves crunching underfoot rounded the corner that we knew something was wrong. Nothing visible was causing the sound, yet it continued, and soon we noticed depressions in the shape of feet appearing in the foliage ahead of us. Something we couldn't see was getting closer, and we both screamed and ran for the house. My final experience in that apartment before we moved was on a sleepless night where the feeling of being watched was stronger than usual, like someone was looming over me. I rolled onto my side, putting my back toward the invisible intruder, and pulled the covers over my head. It was then I felt pressure on the bed, as though someone had climbed on, and a woman's voice whispered in my ear. I can no longer remember what she said, but it terrified me, and I lay there alone and frightened until morning came. That story really hits home for me, um, f for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, I had a friend who, when I was much younger, and I think I mentioned this on the show once, but his family often left him on his own. Mm. And, you know, I remember, you know, because uh, they, they, they were party people. You know, they were, they were 24-hour party people. I, I'm sure they worked, but mm. I don't remember them ever working. It was just, uh, they, they partied. And, yeah. you know, they, they had a lot of friends who were pretty rough customers who would also party in their house. And, uh, yeah. And, and also, you know, the, the town of Tanapa, the way she describes it, this idea that, um, you know, if you want the wrong kind of company, no town is too small yeah. to find the wrong kind of company. Hmm. And I, I, again, I don't think I've ever talked to this, about this on the show, but when I was, I want to say about 10, maybe a little bit older, uh, my father went missing for uh, the better part of six months. Hmm. And he and I, he and I have never been close, but um, the, you know, th that was, that was a, a, a real experience. He, he wasn't living in the house at the time. My parents had separated, hmm. but you know, still you, you noticed it. He was found by a private investigator that my grandfather had hired. He was found in a little town called Hope, which is one of the most misnamed places in yeah. BC next to Golden. But, uh, and Hope sounds very much like Tonopah. And I, I know one of our patrons lives in Hope, uh, so she will know what I'm talking about. You know, there, there are, of course, great people there. But, uh, you know, darkness is never far away if you want to find it. Yeah. And it is interesting when you often get experiences like this from people. There seems to be a displacement of some, at some part, be it a family circumstance or, or the family unit's broken down. It, it's almost as if things 
are able to take advantage of situations like this. It's as as though that <clears throat> scenario has let something in. Oh, absolutely. I know on episode 99, we had a story very much like this. Mm. Uh, the, the Yes, Virginia bathrooms could be haunted too. There was a, a haunted bathroom story that was connected to, uh, I believe actually in that case, an absentee mother as well. Mm. But uh, I think you're right. I think there is some kind of, um, some sort of strife, you know, some sort of, or, or some sort of access that, that that kind of like domestic discord, uh, yeah. you know, provides. And, and which is not to say, of course, that, you know, people who are in single parent households are in like some kind of danger of haunting or something. Yes. Cause <laughs> yes. you know, I grew, I grew up in a single parent household and I mean, okay, I grew into me, but mostly I came out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Me and you both, me and you yeah, both. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the, we, we, there does seem to be a connection between, between upset yeah. and, and these kinds of things. Yeah. It's almost as if someone's taking advantage of the situation. Oh, I, I agree completely. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons I never really liked people who talk about the paranormal in terms of love and light, because mm-hmm. I think that's out there. But I think much like our world, it's a mistake to believe that the subtle world does not also have predators and people who, who prey on weakness. I think that's yeah. just a, a fundamental way of the world. And, and I don't think it means they're evil necessarily, mm-hmm. just that they're, they are, you know, they're the other side equivalent of a shark or a, or a lion and <laughs> looking for weakness and, and burrowing in where it can. The body. My parents split in the mid-1990s when I was 11. By the time my mother remarried and we relocated to Reno, Nevada, where my stepfather was a maintenance man for the Tanamara Resort, I was in my early teens. At the time, Tanamara was only partially finished and behind the undeveloped half was a gulch where my friends and I would go hiking. The bottom of the gulch was covered in tall grass with a stream running through it, and somewhere along the way, there was a stand of trees. The way the branches of each tree curved towards each other gave the spaces between them the feeling of having a vaulted roof, and years of fallen leaves had mulched into a kind of floor, so the stand became a kind of clubhouse for us, and we'd meet there to hang out, talk, or do whatever it was we did before smartphones. It was a comforting place to be when the rest of my life was in flux, until it wasn't. It was late August the day Tim and I wound our way down to the gulch to find a blue tarp stretched out over the floor of the main room in our clubhouse. The tarp itself wasn't a problem, but what was under it? That's a different story. We never found out exactly what it was, because both Tim and I knew what dead animals smelt like, and that was the smell coming from under the tarp. We didn't know exactly what was going on, but we knew it was bad, and it felt as though we were in danger. We dropped low to the ground and started making our way back out of the gulch, staying down as much as we could, which made for hard going. About halfway up the rise, we stopped for a breather, and that's when we saw the black dog. It stood on the opposite side to where we were, at about the same elevation. Now I've seen stray dogs in the gulch, coyotes, even deer, but never anything like this. The dog was the size of a deer, with fur so dark we couldn't make out any features apart from a thick, wide head. When it turned to look at us, another feature revealed itself. Large, red eyes. We ran up the hillside as fast as we could, taking our gaze away from the dog for only a few moments, and when we looked back, it was gone. This may sound crazy, but there's nowhere for a dog that size to have hidden, and no way it could have run away in the short amount of time it had been out of sight. To this day, it doesn't make any sense to me. 
What makes even less sense is our other friend's reaction to our story. None of them believed me and Tim, but at the same time, we never hung out in the clubhouse again. As an adult, I'm fairly certain we found a dead body, but as we never told our parents, there was never any investigation. That sounds to me like that's a black shuck. I'm passingly familiar with black shucks. We've talked to them a little bit on the show, but for, for our listeners who are, who are new to that, why don't you give us a, a brief rundown? Okay, so the black shuck is a catch-all phenomena in the United Kingdom, which is essentially, usually, a giant black dog with fiery eyes that people would encounter in lonely parts around the country. Different areas have different names for them as well. Um, right. Most of them are negative or symbolize a negative experience. Right. They're, they're almost seen like um, like a harbinger of, of, of things to come, isn't is yes. that right? Yeah. Bad okay. luck. Or something would happen to the person that encounters them. Um, but there are, as well, lots of stories about shucks guiding people to safety or people's life turning around after having their own encounter. So, I mean, th- there aren't many of those, but there are certainly enough of them to say they're not wholly negative. In the original posting, some people just alleged that they saw some very prosaic things that their kind of childhood imaginations turned into something more. You know, it was just a dead animal and they saw a regular dog and they panicked. And I suppose that's possible, but... They would be more likely to try and attach it to something more local, a more localized phenomenon. Why does he not think it's a chupacabra? Because obviously the area, that there are stories of that being right, which we obviously now know as Texas blue dogs, not, uh, you know blood-sucking vampire dogs. Yes, we, I'm going to nod my head as though I know that, and but you're going to explain it anyways, just in case someone <laughs> out there doesn't know. <laughs> yeah, so obviously the chupacabra is this lizard-type creature that appeared in 1995 in Puerto Rico and then spread into Central America and obviously rose right. up through Mexico. And then there was a spate of um, livestock deaths and, and chickens and things being killed. And people started seeing these weird dogs, and these weird dogs suddenly became chupacabras as well. Um, Okay. But it ended up that they found out that what was going on was that wolves and coyotes were were mating. Oh. And they were creating this hybrid dog, which basically has a very, very short hair. So they were were kind of a a weird hybrid of of dog um, with striking blue eyes. And obviously the DNA tests on, on some of them that had been run over and knocked down proved that they were a, were a hybrid that nobody was aware of that was going on. That is fascinating. So that's what Chupacabra turned out to be. Well, that version is. Nobody knows what the, the, the blood-sucking lizard one from Puerto Rico is. Right. Well, I mean, some things perhaps we are better not knowing. <laughs> the Jagged Lady. Growing up in a haunted house directly across from a senior's home, I felt pretty early on that I had a fix on whose spirits were passing through our house. My working theory was that all the elderly folks who crossed the Rainbow Bridge at the facility across the street would wander in confusion for a little while as they got used to being on the other side. As explanations go, it seemed neat and tidy, although I would come to learn that not everything on the other side fits into the neat boxes you set out for it. I was an only child so the family computer got one of our three bedrooms all to itself, a room that just happened to be next to mine, and I never liked the way it felt. It was necessary to pass the computer room to get downstairs, and every single time I did, I ran. The feeling was that strong. My reservations were validated when I started to hear the sound of typing come from that room, despite my parents being in bed. Even knowing I was the only one awake in the house, it was a hard thing to believe, so I'd always creep out of my room to check 
and every time the computer room was empty and dark. The typing would stop while I bore witness, then begin again when my back was turned. As I got older, my enthusiasm for being alone became stronger than my discomfort in the computer room, and I started spending more time in there. That's when I saw my first apparition. At the time I was home alone, reading articles online, when from the corner of my eye a tall man, seemingly made of darkness and wearing what appeared to be a top hat, walked past the door and disappeared into my room. To say this was frightening was an understatement. My blood ran cold. Back then I had never heard of a shadow person or the hat man, so it was some kind of shock to find other accounts online. Another time, it was late, and like an idiot, I was in the computer room reading creepypasta. Some of those stories are garbage, but some cut right through you, and it was while reading one of those I felt someone touch the back of my neck. There's no mistaking it, it was absolutely a foreign touch on my body, but when I turned around, no one was there. Again, panic rose in me, and that was the end of nighttime creepypasta. I wasn't the only one who saw things, either. One evening, we were all sitting in the living room watching a movie. I don't remember what, but nothing frightening. When the chandelier in the adjacent dining room began to dim and brighten, then turned off on its own. My father's face fell, and I watched his gaze fix on the light, which had just turned itself back on and commenced again to dimming. After a minute, my father, a large man who I've never seen back down from anything, quietly said, Okay, whatever you are, we believe in you. Go away now. The lights continued for another 45 seconds, then ceased. There are two more things I'd like to share, the first of which occurred when I was 14 and woke up in the middle of the night to pee. After I'd done my business, I was just about to turn off the bathroom light when I saw, down the hall, a misty white figure swaying back and forth. It wasn't a human figure. Not quite. The limbs were jagged, which didn't make any sense. The figure drew towards me, still swaying, and I thought I was having a stroke or something because the whole experience just didn't add up. I tried rubbing my eyes and looking again, but all that changed was the jagged lady came closer. I fled to my parents' room and spent the rest of the night on their floor. The other experience involved what I've since learned is called a doppelganger, and it remains the most frightening experience of my life. It is also the reason I no longer believe my theory about our house being haunted by the benign, recently departed elderly. Again, it was the middle of the night, and I was sound asleep when my mother loudly whispered my name in a furious voice. Mindy! This time I rolled over to find my mother standing in my doorway, framed by the soft light of the hallway table lamp. Except something wasn't quite right. Mindy! Her eyes, usually a soft blue, were hard and cruel and she stood there, staring at me with undisguised malice. Mom? She disappeared right in front of me. Seeing something so familiar and comforting subverted right in front of me, in the dark, terrified me in a way nothing else ever has, and all I could do was hide under the covers. The next morning, I asked my mother if she had been in my room at all the previous night, and of course, she had not. That was no surprise, of course, but then who was it? We'll be right back.
Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the number to call is one 800 273-8255 In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT that's S-H-O-U-T to 85258 In Australia, the number to call is 131114 However bad shit seems, it will pass And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks as always to the rest of the team, Luke Greensmith, Anthony Germain, and Sarah Kent, for their help in keeping this big old machine going. Guys, I couldn't do it without you. Thank you so, so much. And uh, thank you, Paul, from Mysteries and Monsters, the, the great Paul Bestel. Paul, where can people find you online? Just search for Mysteries and Monsters on all social media platforms and wherever you download your podcasts from. Excellent. And what, uh, what do you got coming up on there? Coming up, I've got Kitsy Duncan from The Oddity Files talking about her debut book, I'd Rather Talk to Dead People. Um, I've Fair. got a very exciting episode with a couple of gentlemen from the Olympic Project and some uh, very creepy Bigfoot audio footage to play in that episode and a couple of other spooky episodes coming up into February and beyond. Well, make sure to check out Paul at Mysteries and Monsters and I'm sure you will, well, I know for a fact, you will hear him here again. Thank you as always. Thanks for having me. Thanks for putting up with me. Oh, shit, eh? Thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> <laughs> now... Let's thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, I can never thank you enough for everything you do for us. It uh, it just warms my heart, and we've had a ton of you guys sign up. I have, I believe, more than 30 names here to read. And uh, again, it, it's just overwhelming, your support, and I appreciate it deeply. And so do Luke, Anthony, and Sarah. So, let's get to it, and thank you all by name. Our latest patrons are Caitlin Beggs, Andrew Tang some bat visit. Uh, pardon me, Andrew, if I got that wrong. Maddie Leatherman, Nancy Heilman, Amber Blacklock, Christina McCallum, Debbie Chapman, Mike Temple, Ingrid Ambus, Catherine Olson, Esme Garcia, Tim Laverty, Roxanne Hovde, Michaela, Amanda Greathead, Lexi Firth. 
Tango 94 Mike, Teresa, Sig, Tara Boyer, Warsmith Chris, Samantha Diovich, Catherine Topper, McCray, AP, Katie Donahue Merchant, Natalie Mills, Aaron Miller, Colin Andrews, Stephen Brown, Don Marini, Anthony DeGroat, Estella's Revenge, Sarah Bell, Atham Saragon, and Jason Saliba. Guys, again, that, that's a crazy amount of names, and I am so deeply, deeply grateful to you. Thank you from the bottom of my terrible, terrible heart. If you want to join the team, head on over to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. We have tiers at the 1, 5, 10, 20, and $50 levels, and you get access to all kinds of cool stuff. You get access to our monthly bonus shows, which encompass a variety of things. Right now, um, because obviously the show is a little bit different in the new year, we've changed up some of those rewards. So we're still discovering what those are, but currently the Sunken Library has been a real hit among our patrons. And those are segments where me, or sometimes me and a guest, will tell additional stories that don't fit into the main show. And those can sometimes be stories from books that we found during the process of research, or uh, stories we found online. And there has been some, some weird and wonderful stuff that we found in there. I know the episode that just came out earlier this month had to do with uh, a case of automatic writing that allegedly told the story of an ape on the moon. There's another episode coming up that will be out uh, just before the end of the month, and that is also another animal ghost story that is pretty strange. And as the show continues to grow and as we do more topics like this, there are going to be more and more episodes of Sunken Library available to you. And those shows can run anywhere from 15 to uh, 45 minutes. I, I sort of estimate that's what the new show is going to be. So you get access to that. You also get access to, if you're a music fan, I put out a, a monthly patron-only episode of my music show, Largely the Truth. And that kind of functions both as a primer on what's going on in independent music, which I know has nothing to do with a ghost show, but it's fun for me. I get to share music, which is a passion of mine with our patrons. And it's also kind of functions as a check-in. You'll hear stuff in that episode about the direction the show is going or things that are happening that you just don't necessarily see or hear anywhere else. So it's kind of an opportunity for me to speak directly to the audience while sharing some new music I found that, that hopefully you enjoy. Of course, there's also Movie Nightish, which is our monthly streaming movie event where me and a guest will watch a film with our audience. You get exclusive ringtones, art cards with my night photography, and digital copies of the fantastic Vampire Stepdad album, Love Bites, all of which is available at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at ghoststoryguys at gmail.com with your comments, questions, your gentle criticisms, or, or your stories. Listener stories are still going to be very much a part of our future going forward, and so we would love to hear yours. I read everything that comes in, and we do our best to respond to everyone, but, you know, it, it just may not happen, depending on the volume of correspondence we receive. But please know that we do read everything you send. You can also find us on Instagram at Instagram.com slash TheGhostStoryGuys, Facebook at Facebook.com slash GhostStoryGuys, and Twitter at Twitter.com slash GhostStoryGuys. And if you feel like getting in touch, but you don't want to type... You can always call the ghost line. There's something strange in your neighborhood. We're gonna call ghost line. Call one triple eight five eight eight six nine two oh. 
Thanks to our listener Amber Pease for her ghost line jingle. Again, that number is one 588 6920 That's 1-888-588-6920. And you can leave your story, comment, question, anything as one or a series of voicemails. And we will play those on the mini-shows when they start back up, uh, looking like February. We're going to get back to those. So you will again have weekly Ghost Story Guys to look forward to. That 1-800 number is only valid, unfortunately, in North America. But if you're outside of North America and you still have a comment you want to share, you can just record it using the voice app on your phone and email it to us at ghoststoryguys at gmail.com with the subject heading Ghostline. And if you don't feel like talking, you can always text. 925-553-4789 is the number to get a hold of us and uh, text us whatever you like. Pictures, links, messages. We get a fair number of them these days and and I really love hearing from you guys. And as many of those messages as possible, we will be sharing on the mini shows as well. Uh, Recently, we've had a lot of very sweet messages and that has been very, very kind and very appreciated. So thank you to everyone who's been in touch. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter of Pizzanta Music. You can find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you stream your tunes. Our story's theme is The Future Belongs to Them Now by Hexagram. Find more from them by searching for Hexagram everywhere you get your music. That's Hexagram with two X's, not three. Finally, all other music and sound effects on this show are provided by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for pod-safe music or sound effects for your next project, head on over to EpidemicSound.com to check them out. I guess that's going to do it. We'll be back in two weeks with another show, and until then, into the darkness we go. I did not know this. Yeah. Creating like this super bear. <laughs> Jesus. Coming up on 2021, super bears. <laughs> That's how I made the chupacabra fat. <laughs> I think like Julie says, I, the last thing she, she thinks I need is more toys. <laughs> with my, yeah, with yeah. my collection of Funko Pops that constantly grows. Yeah, no, that's it. We don't, because we have all the spare time. <laughs> all this free time, Paul. Yeah, man found under pile of books. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Man found under pile of Blu-rays that he has still not watched. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously it's that dance that was popular in the late 50s and early 60s. Is that what they told you? Okay. <laughs> I, got, I got some stuff I got to tell you, Paul. Well, you can't hear me, can you? Nope. There you go. Total silence. Radio <laughs> silence. I'm into it. Silence is sexy. <laughs> worry because like one of the, one of the guys actually is the guy that tried to f- did i ever tell you about that story <laughs> no no okay so i'm gonna stop the, <laughs> the guys are so picky it's either skin cancer or shit monster pick one <laughs>